Hi everyone, we're doing this a little differently this year. You won't be able to hear the episode in the background of the podcast. So in order to sync up the show with what we're saying, you should pause now and hit play as soon as the main titles start. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Ronald D. Moore, executive producer and developer of the Outlander television series, here to welcome you to the podcast for episode 301, the season three premiere, The Battle Joined. Um, this was obviously an episode we talked about for a long time, just in concept, in terms of, you know, we wanted to do the Battle of Culloden, and we knew that was always going to be sort of the beginning of season three. Um, I'd say what changed the most from outline and script to, uh, final, uh, cut is the way we realized the Battle of Culloden, which you'll be seeing here in a couple of minutes. Conceptually, what I wanted to do originally was play the entire battle. The Battle of Culloden uh, was actually over very quickly. It was not a long battle. It was about 15, 20 minutes total. Uh, and so we thought that you know we could like um, play the whole battle in real in real time uh, in the episode. And uh, so what I scripted originally was a literal retelling of the battle. Uh, the way in was going to be Murtaugh. Uh, showing up on the battlefield, so we were going to follow Murtaugh into the story. And Murtaugh was going to be coming back from taking the, the Fraser men, you know, sending them on their way back to uh, Lollybrook, and we we're going to pick up Murtaugh. Murtaugh walks into the battlefield, and the preparations for the battle are underway, and he would sort of find Jamie and Rupert on the battlefield with, uh, uh, with Charlie and the, the other uh, uh, Highland Command. And then from that point, you were going to sort of track with Murtaugh and Jamie as they went into the battle and to its ultimate uh, uh, end. Um, I stayed, in the original draft, I stayed relatively close to the, to the movements of, of Culloden and sort of what historical research said when the, when the Highlanders charged, what were the positions of the different forces, and kind of using the high command to sort of uh, illustrate where people were and why and what they did. And ultimately, you know, there was a sequence where Jamie was in the, in the, the, the famous Highland charge going towards the, the red coat lines. Um, you know, they're, they're met with heavy fire, then gun smoke kind of literally billows up on the field and people got to get lost in the fog. But there was going to be a moment where Jamie and his, his band, including Murtaugh and Rupert, sort of penetrated through the red coat lines, captured an English flag, like captured one of the standards, and there was a moment where it sort of felt like maybe they had turned the tide, and then the smoke kind of blew away, and they real and it was just this small group that were deep behind enemy lines and surrounded on all sides. And there was a tableau moment that I, I it was a little bit of an homage to the movie Glory. There's a similar uh, Moment, uh, moment in that film for those of you that, that know that, where they capture the, the, the Confederate flag and then it all turns against them. What happened was uh, that sequence ran about 20 pages or so uh, in the script, and it just was too big and too expensive. You know, I think all our appetites were quite large, and you know, we were inspired by things like you know the Battle of the Bastards episode and uh, Game of Thrones in terms of wow, let's do something big, let's really you know throw some major resources at this battle and and do it right. And it just became such a burden on production that I ultimately decided we, we just couldn't do it. And my reasoning was, yes, we could spend the time and the resources to do it and do it right and do the whole battle, but the consequence would be that we would have to take money away from a lot of other episodes in this in the season. And it was going to eat up so much production time that I'd have to cannibalize many days from other episodes to get us back on track. And ultimately, I just decided that it wasn't worth throwing the whole... Uh, the whole show off off track on the very first episode and then be trying to catch up all the rest of the year. So I went back to the drawing board after much back and forth with production and said, all right, let me reconceive this. And because I had written a, a full version of the battle, I had pieces to work from and, then I, and things that I thought would be kind of cool and interesting to see. And I just went back into the battle and said, all right, let's do this all as sort of Jamie's surreal experience. You know, the, the book, you know, going back to the book, the book really just picks up Jamie uh, waking up on the, the Culloden battlefield, lying there among the dead. And he's kind of drifting in and out of consciousness and thinks back about, you know, what had happened. Uh, not in such details we have in, in the show, but that was sort of the, the spirit of, of, uh, of the sequence in the book. 
Oh, and by the way, for those of you keeping track at home, the scotch this week is Macallan 21, and the smoking lamp is out. So anyway, I decided if we were going to do this sort of surreal, hallucinatory experience of Jamie's, the best way to go at it was to make it non-linear, non-chronological, and make it more dreamlike, where you were just sort of in Jamie's head for the whole uh, Culloden sequence, and you're just sort of drifting in and out of consciousness with him as he sort of can barely, he's right on the knife edge of death through this whole thing, and he just kind of comes back into wakefulness periodically. And his memories are kind of flooding over him of, of the battle that he just fought. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way to, to go at it. And it's, it's sort of different and a little bit unique. And you know, maybe it's a way of getting emotionally inside the battle in a different way. Because the truth is, if we had done the, uh, the battle sequence in the way I originally scripted it, it would have been much more traditional. You would have been following the ebb and flow of the battle. You know, oh, the Highlanders think they can do that, but the Redcoats counter with this, and then the charge, and Jamie's up, and then he's down, and who's going to win and who's going to lose? And you would be caught up in sort of the narrative of the battle itself. This version actually is much more emotional. It's much more inside the character, and it's about our characters, about Jamie Frazier and his personal sort of experience and his personal memory of what he went through. And probably when he looks back on the battle in later life, this is probably the impressionistic memory that he has of it. So it's one of those it's one of those instances in TV where you know a budgetary problem, a production problem, kind of forces you to think a little bit more creatively about what you're attempting to do, and ultimately it does sort of become better. You know, there's a part of me that wishes that we could have shot the full blown Battle of Culloden, you know, as a big set piece because uh, you know I love my love of history and military history, and how cool would it be to see every move of, of an entire battle battle done in real time. But I think the truth is, in terms of our story and in terms of the show and the characters, I think this is a more affecting and more moving presentation of the battle. And I think you do get the, the fundamental idea of the battle. You, you know, the, the Highlanders made this fateful charge which is really what it all kind of boiled down to. They were pummeled by British artillery and then at a certain point they decided to charge the line and that was you know kind of it. They had this one great last charge on the on the battlefield of Culloden, and then they were pretty much wiped out. You know, they were they took heavy heavy casualties, and the British casualties were relatively light. In fact, one of the challenges of doing the sequence was we had to be careful that it didn't look like the Highlanders were killing too many redcoats because historically there really weren't that many redcoats that were killed. Um, one of the other things that I was going to do originally, and that we shot pieces of actually, was uh, we were going to do uh, go, cut behind the British lines and find uh, John Gray and Hector, who was the his his you know, his quote unquote friend, who we realized later was the man he was in love with, and you were going to sort of play that story as well and setting that up for for later episodes where you would look back and realize that that was part of, of the history of that character. And I wasn't sure at the time whether we would actually put that sequence in uh, the Culloden episode, the first episode, or whether it would function just as flashback in a later episode. Uh, ultimately, we did shoot that sequence, and ultimately we, we decided not to use it. We are not filming on the actual Culloden battlefield, obviously, which is a historic, you know, monument in Scotland and you know, sacred ground. This is actually in a, a farmer's field that is not very far from our studios in Cumbernauld. It's it's just a big field, big open space. It's actually not as big as it looks on camera. A lot of trickery is involved in sort of picking your angles and making the horizon look much further away than it is, and only being able to shoot in one direction or two directions at most, because if you turn the other way, you would suddenly see houses and mountains, and it would spoil the illusion. But our director, Brendan, really did a tremendous job of expanding the space visually within the camera. Uh, this whole bit with Jack and uh, Jamie and their final battle, this was really embroidered on by the actors and the director. Um, I think in the script, I kind of I, I talked about the major moves that Jack rode in, gets pulled off his horse, and then he and Jamie fight. You know what seemed basically into the death between the two of them. But what uh, Brendan did, which I thought was really brilliant, is that he took advantage of. Um, 
the fact that at the time of the day they started shooting, they happened to get this glorious big pink sky going on, which you'll see coming up here very sh soon. And it allowed this section of the battle of Jack versus Jamie to sort of take on a heightened, almost surreal quality. You know, up until this moment, everything's been played very realist, very naturalistically, very grounded. You know, it's it's just, there's not even music, there's not even score up until this moment because I felt that, you know, let the, the sounds and, and uh, feeling of the battle just all be in Jamie's literal head and his literal memory. But this section, suddenly you'll notice we have score, the lighting changes, it's more cinematic, because this is truly sort of the clash of our two great antagonists through the show and just felt like this was the proper moment to 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 move us into a different sort of cinematic language because this 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 battle has been a, a very long time coming in the show and just felt like we wanted to give space to it so then the actors when they were rehearsing this i think it was Tobias who came up with this beat you're about to see where he reaches out for Jamie you know, and there's this moment of almost quiet between the two of them. Like this shot I love, the, the two men, the two men left on the battlefield. There's enough smoke in the background to make it somewhat plausible that if there are other people walking around, you don't see them. But it's definitely a heightened sort of out of time and place moment. This moment right here where Jack is reaching out for Jamie, I think this is something Tobias and, and Sam came up with on the set on the location. And then this is just a lovely moment. It's just, it's very emotional. It's complicated and profound as they sort of fall back down together. That's the uh, the dragonfly in amber, you know, uh, which we, we talked about at length about how to find the, dra the, the, the amber on the battlefield, where was it, when did he drop it, and then when we shot it, of course, it was really hard to see, so I ended up uh, adding a little extra a glow to it in post-production so now it somewhat appears like a magical <laughs> rock which I kind of regret but there was no way to see it otherwise if I didn't sort of give it a little bit of interior light so that's that's sort of pushing things a little bit there uh, I love this moment with uh, Jamie and the rabbit this came to me literally as I was writing the script the second version of the script the, the, the surreal version of the script and I was just looking for you know somewhat of a human moment. He's lying there amid all the death. There's all this death and desolation and horror all around him. And I just had a, a thought of looking over and seeing a bit of life, seeing something, you know, soft and innocent and positive, you know, out of nowhere. And there was just this idea of this bunny that would just hop around. And I, and I think I wrote in the script, man and bunny look at each other for a moment and then, and then it, the moment is gone. And that kind of led me to this notion of seeing Claire, of having a, a vision of Claire walking across, you know, the fallen in the snow. And I love the idea of the snow on the battlefield. There was a little beat earlier on where Jamie licked his lips just to sort of get you know, a drop of a drop of water in his mouth, and we added that to, with the visual effects. But I love the idea of Claire coming out of a snowfall to touch him, and then it becomes Rupert. I thought it was important here that we never see Claire and Jamie in the same frame. You'll notice that we cut away um, without ever having them share the frame together. You'll see as, as episodes go on this season that we never put Jamie and Claire in the same frame until they actually re reunite, because I wanted to sort of underline and emphasize the separation of the two characters um, until they got back together. I love, I have to say, just as a side note, I love Sam's performance through this whole sequence. He, he, he just, there's something really moving and affecting about the way he lays there. And it's just such a, a hard thing to ask an actor to do because he, he, all he could do is move his head and he had to be almost on the edge of dying. And I just thought he did a tremendous job. Okay, the Claire story is, there's an interest, there's a couple of things to talk about here. A, the Claire Frank story is pretty much invented out of whole cloth for the episode. I mean, it's implied by, by different incidents in, in different books, and a lot of these pieces of backstory are sort of somewhat alluded to. Uh, not too much of it is literally taken from the book, but I thought it was all in the spirit of what... Uh, Diana had laid out for what the Claire Frank relationship had become once they went back to Boston. So that's the first thing to know. Um, this sequence here uh, in the Randall house and then coming up with Claire, you know, um, 
deciding to cook in the fireplace, this was all a, a very late addition to the script. My original script did not have any of this. The, the first Claire scene was actually going to be uh, Claire and Frank at the faculty tea at Harvard, and we were going to open there. And I just wanted to cut from the battlefield into a completely different environment, this sort of calm, very sedate place where people were intellectualizing about this and that in politics, and see Claire was in that world while Clint Jamie had gone through this horror on the battlefield. So that was the original version of the script, and that was uh, all the way through the drafts. And what happened was we were actually in production, and I was in Scotland, and we started getting timings coming back. You know, there's a script supervisor on a, on a TV show does timings, like she times how long actual scenes are taking and takes and starts making projections ahead about how long she thinks the episode is going to run. And we start getting these timings back uh, from her, and also based on the, t uh, the table read. It might have been at the table read. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, the table read, you know, when the cast reads the entire script start to finish, the script supervisor times it and gives you a projection of how long she thinks the, the uh, episode's going to run. Well, this episode came in very short. It was like in the like, uh, 38, 39 minutes, 40 minutes tops. And generally speaking, if you know you have an instinct about a show, and a lot of times the projections can be wildly off one way or another. They can run much shorter, they could run much longer, and you sort of let your instinct, in addition to that, guide you. And she came back and said it was really short, and that kind of scared me, because I didn't think it was that short, but then anything with a three in front of it starts to scare you, because you realize that's really short. So I was in Scotland, and I was trying to decide if this was real or not, and how concerned I should be, and what would I do, and I left my office and said, okay, I need to go think about this. And maybe what, what would be scenes that I would write if I had to write more scenes for this show? Okay, it wouldn't be on the Jamie side. That's all, the Culloden stuff is just we're jam-packed. Maybe there's something in Claire. And I knew right away as a producer that, okay, I didn't want to build a new set. It would have to be on an existing set with existing characters. Okay, that's the Frank and Claire apartment. So I walked down to the soundstage where the Frank and Claire apartment was, was standing. And... Um, I decided to just walk around the set and see, and I literally said, let me see what inspires me, <laughs> which is just kind of, it sounds a little pretentious, but that's what sometimes you do. So I walked under the, under the set, which was still being painted and, and worked on, and I wandered around, and I saw the fireplace. And I sort of looked at the fireplace for a minute and thought about it and thought, Claire used to cook over campfires. And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if... What if she wanted to cook over a campfire in this house? Because that connected her to the Jamie story. And then I looked around and I thought, well, when would that happen? That would have to be pretty early in the relationship. And I started getting this idea of Claire wanting to cook but being frustrated by the kitchen and deciding to cook on a campfire in her own home. So I walked back to the office, I opened my laptop, and I sat down. And in about an hour, I wrote up this opening sequence where Claire and Frank come to the apartment for the first time where it's still empty and they have their first conversation and then transitioning to this sequence where she uh, meets a neighbor decides to cook in, in, in the fireplace. And it just kind of all came out of that. And ironically, it's like one of those, I wasn't even sure if it was going to be in the show because I wasn't entirely sure that, that the timing was correct, which it turned out to be. But I do now, looking back at the episode, it's, it's a couple of my favorite scenes. And they were just written in like an hour, like just right off the top of your head. Sometimes as a writer, you find that there is that first idea, best idea kind of thing happens to you. And you can just kind of get in a flow and just sit down and write it, especially with characters that you know fairly well. Uh, Millie, by the way, is named after the neighbor in the Dick Van, Dick Van Dyke show. And so is her husband, Jerry. They were the neighbors in the original Dick Van Dyke show. You know, and this is all talking about Claire's relationship, you know, and her trying to give this a go because it felt like this is Claire. When she arrived, last we saw her in the 40s, and when they got off the plane at LaGuardia, Claire had decided to give it a try. And so I thought she was honor bound to keep trying. She was going to try to make that relationship work. Um, this whole section here of Jamie in the farmhouse with the others. Um, wounded uh, men and officers uh, from Culloden. This is very much taken from the book. Uh, I think what I did is I recall Rupert is not, I think Rupert had died in the previous season in the book. And uh, so our Rupert lived longer and there were lines, a lot of the 
the uh, staging here, or rather the you know the decisions and the dialogue that Rupert has in the sequence, are actually um, given to another character in the book. But I, I, I thought as far back as last season that this was going to be Rupert's job; that he would be the one to kind of be in charge of the farmhouse and make the major decisions and be the one that would negotiate with the British, you know, as they came in. Because Jamie's role here is still to be hovering on the verge of death. You know, it's it's, it's an interesting place for uh, your main character to be where he's really out of the action. He's not making any of the key decisions and he's basically, you know, just one of the wounded and can barely even, you know, speak for himself, much less anyone else. And I like that aspect of this of this part of the story because it's it's an untraditional way to go and it just it's one of the, 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 the joys of doing the show is that sometimes you can really go against what is the conventional drama. And again, uh, I was talking about this earlier. I just think Sam is tremendous through this episode. There's so much, such a haunted look in his eyes, and there's so much depth I think he's giving you with by doing just very, very little. And I, it's just, I, I've watched him dozens of times in this show, and I just, each time I'm sort of more impressed by what he did here. This actually, at one point, was going to be the beginning of the Claire story. You know, there was the version where we cut straight into the faculty tea. Then I think the next draft that I wrote of the script, the one that was uh, that was at the table read, was going to cut from Jamie to Jamie's face to Claire's face, and Claire was looking in the mirror, you know, and getting ready to put put on makeup. So that's this is sort of where the the original story was gonna was gonna start. Uh, this is obviously not Harvard University. This is a location. In Glasgow, I believe, sitting in for for um, for Boston and Harvard. I thought it was kind of fun at this point to sort of talk politics. It's just something different, you know. We do a lot of Scottish politics, and I thought oh, you're at a faculty tea and at Harvard, and you're in this the fall of uh, 1948, and um, they would be talking about the presidential election. It's also interesting now, retrospectively, obviously, you know. Uh, that when I was writing this, I was talking about one of the great upsets, one of the great political presidential upsets of the 20th century when, you know, Truman defeated uh, uh, Dewey. And I had no idea when I was writing the scene and we were shooting it that, you know, Donald Trump was going to then uh, be the victor in the, in the next greatest political upset in, in presidential history. So this wasn't really intended to, to comment on the, the, the Clinton-Trump race, but in, you know, now in the context in which it's going to be broadcast, it, it'll feel like it. We did sort of uh, play a little uh, We went back and forth a little bit about when Frank's attitude would be here. There was a version where Frank was um, less sympathetic to Claire and a little more like on the side of the, uh, the other guys, like not being uncomfortable, not shutting her down, but being less comfortable with her speaking up in this public forum. But as the scene evolved, and I think, as I recall, I think I also had some conversations with Tobias and, uh, and Kat, it felt more like... Uh, that Frank would actually be supportive of her and that that was a, a better way to get that relationship going if he was actually on her side a little bit more overtly because then you started to root for them as a couple a little bit more. And I think that was ultimately the, the, the right way to go. I uh, did do uh, you know a fair amount of research into when women came into Harvard, which was a fascinating sort of you know, historical uh, information as it was. There was Radcliffe, which was an all... An all uh, female school at the time, which sort of functioned as the other Harvard, sort of in the Boston area. And then they sort of slowly were letting women into, you know, Boston Med and then uh, or Harvard Medical and uh, Harvard Law, you know. And so it's interesting to sort of find, you know, to go back into this period and see that, you know, th things weren't as progressive as, as you thought they were, because this is within living memory, this whole this whole era. Uh, again, this is the Cloisters. This is uh, at uh, Glasgow University, standing in for Harvard. I'm sure. I'm sure everyone who's been to Harvard it will jump to say that there is no such structure as this at Harvard University. Be that as it may, in our version, there is. A uh, special shout out, of course, to the costumes. I thought Terry did a tremendous job evoking this period and sort of, you know, the reality of, of what men and women are wearing here and just, you know, the costumes as always sort of root you into the, into the characters and into the period and they just, it's a great shorthand for where you are in, in space and time. And I think they look really great on, on, the, on the cast. 
that shot is a bit of a composite, sort of VFX, sort of erasing certain things and adding the farmhouse into that shot. Didn't have a really great angle on the farmhouse to work with because it was sort of a structure that just didn't lend itself to a lot of great photography. So we sort of hit it with different shrubs and bushes and so on. Yeah, in every version, um, it was always going to be unclear what had happened to Murtaugh on the battle of uh, on the battlefield. And for the purposes of this podcast, it will also be unclear what happened to Murtaugh on the battlefield. This is interesting. I mean, this is all again very drawn from the book. So I, you know, Diana gets all the credit for for this little story here. I, I really like the character of Lord Melton and um, his aide and their, their attitudes as they come in. And the sort of the, the the resolute and firm sense of his duty, and yet his innate humanity being there at the same time, you know, at an era when a man's honor was held above literally everything else, and even though he's here to execute these men as traitors, you know, whether or not without trial and just sort of in defiance of most of most conventions of war, because they. You know, if it was a true war between two opposing nations at this time, you, you don't just go execute the prisoners. But in in this particular circumstance, they weren't just uh, prisoners of war. They were seen as r rebels and traitors. And so the Duke of Cumberland had given this order to execute all of them, um, which is a questionable order, to be sure, even in that time. Uh, but I like the fact that Melton had certain lines that he was that he held for himself. He, he was a man with a code. And, you know, he... He asks them if they're traitors. He's going to shoot them, but and he's not going to hang them. Coming up a little bit later, he's going to say that you know he's not going to shoot a man lying down. And even though he won't let the boys off, it's like he he just he, there, there's a humanity to him that I thought was really interesting and fresh. And I appreciated the fact that the characters were not painted as monstrous villains and mustache twirlers coming in to do evil things to our, our Highlanders. Uh, again, this we're back in the uh, the Boston apartment. Now, an interesting note is that the Boston apartment is actually a redress of the f apartment that Jamie and Claire had in France. It's the exact same footprint. All the the walls and passageways and windows are basically the same. Uh, Gary Steele, our production designer, essentially just revamped the set, you know, to work as the Boston apartment. So uh, it was a really interesting task uh, one, to, to change it over into that. That's why I have the, the, there's a line in the first scene where Claire and Frank are walking through it for the first time. And Claire's like, wow, you know, it's pretty big for a, <laughs> on, a on a professor's salary, which we all kind of went, yeah, it is kind of big for a, a junior professor's salary, but okay, let's just try to, we'll hang a lantern on that, which means to, you know, uh, sort of acknowledge something in, in a TV show openly uh, and then move on. This little beat with the bird was meant to sort of echo the moment with Jamie, you know, and his moment with the bunny. There's just, and there's also a part of Claire that has a running theme with birds. We saw it in the, you know, the, the, the witch trial episode in season one. And there's just something also about the literal, you know, flying away and being free and the, the, the character in the cage, you know, as it were. And I thought that was just an interesting little subtle echo between the two. I love all the period furnishings in here, and the the stove, and the refrigerator, and the the ovens. It was just it was great stuff. When you were on the set, it was fun to walk around this set and walk around the kitchen and go, "Oh, I've heard of that," or "Oh, my grand my grandmother or my great grandmother had this," or "This I saw in the garage one day." <laughs> this whole thing with the tea bag, I thought was funny. You know, but the, yes, the our, our UK friends are. They're not above tea bags anymore. <laughs> there was a period where they, they would definitely look down upon the tea bag. And this, I, I just had some fun with this about, okay, there are two expats now living in America. What are their different point of views on, on the new country? You know, giving them different points of view. Claire trying to embrace it more. Frank, ironically, even though he's the one that brought them there, still being a little bit, you know, tied to the mother country. But Claire not even thinking of England as her home. 
this speech here that Frank's about to give about, you know, giving up uh, Drake and Marlboro and Hastings and so on, this is actually an homage to uh, a speech from uh, my favorite uh, musical of all time, 1776. And there's a speech uh, in it where the character of John Dickinson is is arguing with John Adams, and he's reminding him about, you know, you know, give, you know, reminding Adams of everything that England had meant to them, and would you really forsake Hastings and Marlborough and Drake and so and so, and for for what? For you, sir? For you? And it's always been one of my favorite speeches in that in that musical, and I just decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a version of that here, just as a, an homage, which was just in a very int- in a different context, obviously, but still talking about America and its value and its your relationship to the mother country, and I just thought that was that was a fascinating sort of speech that he gave and I, I was tickled to, to, to put it in the show. Yeah, this is the speech. Hastings and Magna Carta, Drake, Marlborough. And I really like the the, the 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 actors here play this so well. Is watching, even though they're not talking about their relationship through any of this, they are talking about their relationship. You know, and there's a lot of subtext, a lot of looks, a lot of body language. You know, it's just two these. You know, Cat and and Tobias have played off of each other for three years. You know, and they've developed a rhythm and shorthand with each other. And you can watch them experiment. You can watch them try things out on the set and in dailies. And it's just a joy to 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 watch their scenes and and see what they do with it. And, you know, how quickly it can go volatile between the two of them is one of the really fun things, that you can write a scene like this that you know, that, that starts light and fluffy and fun and then has a turning point and gets serious and then like literally spirals into people throwing things at each other and shouting. And that's not an easy transition. You know, you're asking a lot of your cast when you're taking them from, from A to B there. And these two could just take it and, and run with it. You know, I mean, the, the raw emotion that Kat's capable of, of giving you here and the anger of, of Tobias, I mean, they, they just, you can just see them like feeding off of each other and handing it back and forth and building it, building the scene. It's just, it's fun. You know, it's fun to, it's fun to work with, 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 with pros like this. And it's great, you know. I, I totally believe it. I believe that moment of rage. I believe the the throwing of the ashtray in an impulsive moment, and then I, I believe that it, it takes the air out of the out of the scene as well as each of them realizes it's they've gone too far. This is true. This is true. I, I like the fact that what Frank's, what Frank's saying is absolutely true. He didn't force her first. It's all her choice, and it's, and it's her choice to stay, and it is. And Claire's not a victim of her own story. I mean, Claire is the author of her story, and this this was her choice. and her own complicated feelings and it's great it's one of my favorite scenes of the season is, is that whole long scene uh, I, I definitely wanted to stay inside the farmhouse I didn't want to go outside with the, the executions and the firing squad but I wanted to establish it and see it so it was just kind of a, a, a creative choice to stay inside for the most part except for this I wanted to see it and you know be very distant from it and it had more power in some ways by seeing it far away over there they're doing those things to those people than being you know in it 
And this, like I said earlier, I mentioned the scene earlier with the, the two boys. This is this is taken directly from the book. Was this little negotiation? I mean, you know, arguably you could cut it because we all know who these boys are, and we're never gonna obviously never gonna see them again. So, so why do we care? But somehow, I thought it spoke to to the humanity of everyone involved, the boys and their situation, Rupert arguing on their behalf, uh, you know, Lord Melton's reluctance and yet firmness in his duty, and everyone sort of trapped into sort of their roles, but never losing sight of, of the people. Uh, I think it's been, I'm sure Diana's talked about it before, but this whole incident actually happened. There was, there really were a group of survivors that were uh, in this farmhouse uh, after the Battle of Culloden, and they really were held there for several days by the British, and then the British did uh, execute them one by one. And on the list of names, there were officers from the Fraser um, regiment that and there was a one Fraser officer that was missing from the names of the dead like they knew that the, he was in there and then he wasn't there on the listing of names and it, it was something Diana found by happenstance as I recall she could probably tell the story 10 times better than I can but as my, my recollection was that she discovered that during her research and it was just like this beautiful bit of happenstance that there really was a Frasier missing from the rolls of the dead who went into that uh, farmhouse but didn't come out. And so she, she sort of wrote the story around it. Again, go look it up on, on the web because I'm sure there's a better version of the story than what I just gave you. But that's the, <laughs> that's the gist of it. Again, just consider Sam here. He, you were asking the actor to just lie flat on his back. He can't. He's really limited in what he can do. He's not making the key decisions. He's reacting to everything, and his role is just to sort of be almost dead and sort of keep keep himself alive through this all and be human. And it's wonderful. I can't take my eyes off of him through, through these sequences. I think it's just a tremendous job. Even that little look from Melton is nice, just the sort of acknowledgement, the firmness of it, and yet the respect. I thought it was really important, you know, we talked about that Rupert should have a last moment with Jamie where the, the subject of Dougal comes up. And I, I thought it was important that Rupert, if he doesn't forgive him, at least he doesn't hate him as he goes to his death, and there would be some bit of rapprochement between the two men. And I thought that was a lovely end to that relationship and that, and that story. And just bringing up Angus one more time, you know, it's just a nice, sweet, you know, bittersweet farewell here. I also really, you know, I love Grant and the role of Rupert, and really, you know, it was a shame that of him leaving the show. Like so many of our of our cast members, you know, you really get attached to the characters and the and the, the actors portraying them. I was very fond of Grant, loved his portrayal of Rupert, and I wanted him to really have a, a great exit from the show, and so I, I wanted him to have this, this this great little speech. And I really, my favorite line in this whole piece is in coming up here in just a moment when he walks up and he's, he gives his name with pride and stands tall and then turns to the sergeant and he says, keep, try to keep, I mean to, I mean to keep a quick pace, so try to keep up. And then he walks out to his death with that. It's just something, something just classically, you know, heroic and defiant to the very end and that Rupert would hold his head high as he went out. And I, I just really liked, I, I really like his exit from the show and, um, and Grant will, will absolutely be missed. Although he'll always be part of the family, I'll, I'll definitely miss writing scenes for him. And we played around with this a bit in editorial. We wanted to have enough time on Jamie. We wanted enough time for Rupert to be taken out there, for everyone to raise their weapons. You wanted to sort of extend the moment as much as you could before the final, the final volley.
And I, I believe that's Sam. I think Sam uh, found those lines. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's the Gallic uh, for um, uh, Farewell, uh, Rupert. And I liked going from Jamie straight to Frank on opposite sides of the frame. Something we kind of found in, in, in editorial. It's a nice little sequence here. Um, I'm not sure what I was going for. I, I, I kind of like it for reasons I can't quite name of just Frank... You know, not being able to sleep and the the modern electronic uh, and you know t technological noises in the house sort of keeping him awake, which sort of like roots him in the 20th century and as opposed to Jamie and and Claire's experience that this is all every, every little piece here you see is something that you know from that's from modern that is rooted in modernity. And then he gets up and he decides to um, write a letter to the Reverend. Now this is from uh, the books. Um, which you find out uh, later that Frank had, and that the Reverend had kept a correspondence, and there was, uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, subplot about that that I won't go into here, but that's kind of scattered uh, through the book series about Frank's research into Jamie, unbeknownst to Claire, and what he and the Reverend traded letters back and forth, and so this was sort of you know the the beginning of that, which I, I believe we we talked about in season two when Roger and Brianna, um, you know, discovered the some of the correspondence in the attic, but this is where it all begins. This, this moment, I've always, I don't know why, I, this reminds me, I'm always taken back to the I Love Lucy episode where Lucy's pregnant and Lucy's going to have her baby and she kind of walks in and, and no one no one's listening and she's trying to tell them that she's having the baby and that whole episode. As a child, like the, the 1950s version of having a baby on TV always really stuck with me and I've always thought about down through the years whenever we're writing a pregnant wherever I'm writing a show about pregnancy or giving birth, it's like I always think back about that moment in I Love Lucy. Again, this this uh, section here is drawn very closely from the book. And I'm probably using, as I recall, I probably use some of the dialogue from the book here, with Melton and Jamie and the and the lieutenant. Um, you know, this is this is one of those great surprises that I remember when I was reading it for the first time. I I got to this section. I was like, how is she going to get out of this? Like, they're all going to be executed. Jamie can't even walk. And clearly, they're being executed one by one, and I, I just didn't see the way out. And, and that this was this callback to the character of John Gray that had been set up, you know, the year before was I, I remember just or the book before. I was really impressed. I mean, it's a very nice bit of storytelling. It, it's it feel, it's organic to the to the to the story. It's not it's not uh, sort of fabricated out of thin air, and it makes sense. And yet, you're surprised by it. And it's really I don't think there's any way that you could possibly see this coming. So it was great to be able to use this uh, in the show. And again, it touches on uh, 18th century notions of uh, honor and obligation and giving your word and what that meant and how far uh, the men and women of the era would go to preserve the idea of their, of their personal honor. And I like that the show keeps touching on that and reminding us that this was a different era, that they had a different value, sy uh, value system and that, you know, that we're sometimes we're surprised by how, how dear they held, they held these sorts of uh, moral ideas. briefly thought about doing a flashback here to that incident, but it really felt like it would uh, break the mood and would take you out of this scene. And, and you know, it felt like it, it's a little, too, sometimes it's just too much of a TV convention to sort of flashback and, and uh, remind the audience what the characters are talking about. You know, it's not that we're above doing that sort of thing, but in, in this particular circumstance and the mood of this particular scene, I thought, no, it'll just, it, it's, it's destructive. It's not, uh, it's not additive.
I believe the, the phrase, this is a deuce of a situation, is in the book, so it's not an homage to Stewie on Family Guy, although you would be forgiven for thinking so. Again, I'm not above that sort of thing either, but it just it doesn't happen to be. <clears throat> Looking, uh, you know, taking a sort of a bird's eye view of the season, this chapter of Jamie's experience in Culloden and the post-Culloden felt just naturally like, okay, well, that's an episode. And as I moved, as we, the writing staff, moved forward into the book and we're outlining the, the chapters and sort of how they would lay out episodically, it became relatively clear relatively soon that Jamie's story was going to sort of provide the, the beat, as it were. It was going to sort of be able to say, okay, well, Jamie's story sort of fit into neat chapters and each chapter would be an episode and an hour unto itself. So the, the Culloden story has a natural ending and a natural arc to it. The next chapter of the Jamie story that you'll see next week it, you know, has a natural arc and ending to it as well, and so does the subsequent one, and so on. And then the challenge just kind of became where to begin in, in the Claire story. What would the Claire, Claire story be? Because I said earlier, the Claire story overall, the Claire Frank story overall, is kind of something that we sort of invented out of more or less whole cloth, inspired by and referencing material in the book. But the actual sort of storylines and the way we played them is really something that we did uh, for the television series. So it became more about, okay, what is what are the Claire arcs within each individual episode, whereas the Jamie story was always sort of giving us the meter uh, and sort of the, the rhythm of, of the pace of the episode and what was going to drive us to, to the end of the episode. In my first, in, my, in, in the versions of the script, all versions of the script actually ended on the Jamie story, ended with Jamie getting to Claude, and, uh, sorry, to Claude, ending with Jamie getting to Lollybrook and, and the last line of the episode being, you're home, Jamie, you're home, which on the page felt very emotional and felt like, oh, wow, and that's, and, you know, we begin with Jamie and we would end with Jamie. When you put the episode together, Actually, the bigger emotional ending was with that baby and who has the red hair. So we switched it editorially. One last word about that that brief wagon ride with Jamie. You know, it's a very short wagon ride, and a lot of it was shot second unit much later. I had some, and there were various vignettes of Jamie being, you know, going through the night and riding through the day that I put in the script. And there was one line I put in there where Jamie was, it was hot and He's lying in the back of the wagon, and it said something like, suffering under the merciless Scottish sun. And the crew <laughs> endlessly mocked me. There were many, many joking references to the merciless Scottish sun, when, of course, the merciless Scottish sun is often obscured by cloud and rain most of the time. And it's not really that merciless. <laughs> Uh, this is all, you know, uh, uh, just just reminding the audience and ourselves of, you know, what childbirth was like in this era in the 40s, you know, and that mothers were routinely, you know, put out under general anesthesia to deliver the baby, whether they wanted to or not. And the the doctor's attitude was, was very paternalistic and tended to ask the father's, you know, questions. And it was just sort of, a, again, an opportunity to remind ourselves of, yes, the 20th century is the quote-unquote more progressive century in so many ways, but it wasn't quite what we think it was even in the 1940s. And I, this is a lovely opportunity to just bring these characters together. They've had this enormous row, and they're, you know, they're at odds, and they're, things are not working well. But in a moment of crisis, wouldn't they come together, and wouldn't they each reach out and each try to like, get through you know, the difficult circumstance that they're in? Uh, one of our researchers pointed out to me that the phrase flop sweat is actually anachronistic to 1948, that that's a term, according to research, that came up, uh, was invented a decade or two later. I decided to ignore that research because there is no synonym that I could figure out that was as evocative as flop sweat, so I just kept it in the show. And it was important to me that in this sequence that everything feel as hard and clinical and antiseptic as possible. Um, 
not only because that's what they did in the era, but also just to contrast with the sort of the, you know, the 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 warmer, more organic, and you know, more rustic feeling of of the 18th century that she left, and to really, you know, remind the audience of the cold, uh, clinical aspect of of technology and what it what it also does to people as well as saving their lives. That there's, you know, one of the trade offs was this this sort of you know, coldness to to the entire uh, medical experience. Originally, on this transition, I wanted Claire to wake up multiple times, like her sitting up and saying, where's my baby, where's my baby? Um, oh, I'm sorry, that's in the next cut. This was originally going to be, Jamie was going to be seeing raindrops going down the side of the, the wagon, and um, he was going to get fascinated with the raindrops and a stream and put his finger to sort of divide a stream of rain into two Two, into a fork, you know, with two paths, symbolic of him and Claire. It, it just didn't work out. It was too much. It was. It's more a literary idea than it was uh, something you could realize on camera. But this, this was going to be the original end of the episode. Was this right here? Great to see Jenny and Ian again. So that's why this this shot is designed like this. You'll see this is a big pullback that goes up to the the Fraser family crest because this was originally designed to be uh, the end of the episode. Just didn't feel like it carried the same weight. It didn't have the same the, the same dramatic emotional uh, punch as, as what we opted for. This is where I was talking about a, a moment ago where Claire I wanted her to wake up multiple times. And I wanted to use clips of Claire waking up from first season, second season, you know, in various aspects, just sitting up, opening her eyes, and then repeating the phrase, where's my baby, from the Paris episode, just couldn't make it work. We didn't actually have the footage of her waking up in all those different ways. A combination of baby doll and live baby through all of this, hard to pick them out. There's actually the real baby. Also, a lot of conversation about the red hair and can we see the red hair on camera? And we ended up color correcting the hair a little more red than it was on, on the set because we did want it to read without looking like we had gone on the set and dyed this poor child's hair. So we just kind of lightly uh, changed it in post-production. It's such a sweet and you know lovely scene, and it's like such a reconnection. And what I really love about it is that you just once again here you're like rooting for them. You're hoping it's you actually sort of find yourself hoping that it's going to work out and that they can they can make this this crazy relationship work with the birth of a new child and a new beginning, and then it just all is ruined in, in just in just a moment and just in just one question. And they both really believe it right at that moment. That's so great. <laughs> great ending. It's a it's a lovely episode. I'm very proud of it. I think it's a very emotional show. It's a you know, it's a very special show. Uh, it's a great way to kick off season three and uh, happy to have shared it with you. Well, I think that wraps it up here on the podcast and uh, we'll be talking again on the next episode, 302. Until then, I'm Ronald D. E. Moore and uh, good night and good luck. <laughs>